I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy. And you're listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two different friends, Amy is like a golden retriever and I'm like a grumpy cat, talk about all the amazing advantages that come from living a bookish life. Each week we do a deep dive Q&A with a book lover, an author, awesome, a bookseller, bingo, a member of a book club, marvelous. We chat with bibliophiles from all over about why stories are integral to who they are. Our guest this week, Maisie Edding, started out as a massive romance reader. In fact, during her most stressful times of life, she would read upwards of a book a day, drawn to that guaranteed happy ending that all romance novels require. But as someone who has an anxiety disorder, ADHD, and is on the autism spectrum, she felt like she didn't see the issues that she deals with on a day-to-day basis portrayed in the book she was reading. So in the middle of dental school, she started writing scenes that later became her debut novel. Her first book, A Brush with Love, hit bookstores at the beginning of March and features two dental students as they fall in love and deal with very adult struggles like extreme anxiety and familial guilt. Maisie also has five additional books in the pipeline over the next three years that feature other neurodivergent characters. We talk about why romance is the perfect genre to explore happy endings for underrepresented groups, the amount of misogyny still found in historically male-dominated fields, and about the trend of women in STEM within the romance genre that appears to be here to stay. But first, Carrie, I'm a little afraid to press you on anything today because you are so intimidating. (laughs) So intimidating. According to my family, anyway. So I don't know. This has been a discussion that we've been having for several weeks. Everybody in my family agreed that I am intimidating. And I was really surprised by that because I don't think of myself as intimidating. I think of myself as pretty approachable. I mean, aside from being, you know, kind of a grumpy person, you know, I think I'm pretty approachable. And so I decided to take it outside the house and find out what other people who don't live with me (laughs) think about whether I am intimidating or, you know, because it kind of bothered me. I think I like to think of myself as, you know, pretty self-reflective and pretty self-aware. And so when my family said that, it took me aback. But anyway, so I, I got on Facebook and I you, know, you did I, a Facebook poll. I did a Facebook poll. And I was like, you know, if you think I'm intimidating, just say yes. And if you don't think I'm intimidating, say no. And if you feel the need to make any other comments, you're free to do that. You know, I wanted to see if if that's across the board. And I think the gist, or at least what I took from this very non-scientific Facebook poll is that my family is wrong. You know, that maybe I'm probably pretty approachable the first you know, five times you ask them to do something. Yeah. Or if they come to me and ask me to do something, if they ask me when I'm not knee deep in something else they've asked me to do or something that I'm responsible for doing, like cooking dinner, you know, that I'm usually pretty approachable. But after, you know, I've had to ask them five times to do something and I lose (laughs) my stuff uh because i can't say that word that i actually do lose on the radio then they're like why you're so intimidating and i'm like well i wasn't the first one two three four times that i asked you to do this so you know basically what what i took uh, and you saw the poll so you you can tell me if you disagree but i you know people said that i'm assertive but that i'm friendly and approachable and yes i would agree with all that you don't suffer fools lightly 
but you are approachable. I think it's because you speak your mind. And a lot of times people find other people who speak their mind about things, especially a woman, Mm -hmm. but sometimes find that a little scary. Yes. I think think that's a good word for it. Yeah, A little scary, but it did make me feel better. What's been going on with you? I had kind of exciting news. Mm-hmm. My husband and I just yesterday booked our trip to Italy for May. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm so excited. So it'll be the first time that I've ever been to Italy. And my husband, I think jumping off of my desire to read books about the place I'm going to visit said, let's find a book that you and I can read together that's set in Italy. And I'm having trouble finding one. So listeners out there, if you have some suggestions, send them my way. Because the ones that I thought about, I've already read, or it's not particularly a genre he likes. So he's more into, he likes history, he likes fantasy, he likes science fiction. I'm more like, I like literary fiction, I like memoir like historical fiction, if we could find something that kind of meets in the middle, but I haven't found that thing yet. The one that I thought might be the best is In the Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which I read years and years ago. And I really, I remember really liking it when I read it and it's set like in the middle ages at a monastery. And one of the monks is like solving a murder. So maybe that, but if I remember correctly, and I'll have to look it up, it's really long, like 800 pages. And I... I don't know if I can commit 800 pages. Well, you could finish the book that you that's set in Italy that you never finished. What's that one? <laughs> a Room with a View. Oh! By yeah, E.M. Forster. Yes, because we're going to Florence and that's set in Florence. I should finish that. You're you absolutely right. You should finish right. that. I should. And that's a, short, that's a short one. Yeah. Although I kind of don't think that's going to be my husband's jam. But I could yeah. be wrong. I don't know. Who who knows? But he has us watching a couple series too. He has us watching a series on Netflix called The Medici uh, that has Richard Madden in it, which I like Richard Madden a lot. He's very easy on the eyes, uh, but I don't really like him in this role very much. He does a lot of scowling. <laughs> he scowls through most of the series, but you know. Learning more about the Medici family is probably a pretty good thing to do before you go to Italy, so to Florence. Well, let me tell you, I watched a really good movie. We watched The Lost Daughter that's directed by Maggie Gyllenhaal, and it's based on a book by Elena Ferrante, and actually, I like the movie so much that I am now about 50% done with the book. It's a short book, but the movie was really good. Like gives you lots of things to talk about and think about, especially as a woman. Okay. So I was just looking because I have read an Ilana Ferrante novel. Mm-hmm. I read My Brilliant Friend, which is mm-hmm. the first book in the Neapolitan novel series, which was very, very popular. And so many people had raved about those books. And when I read it, I didn't dislike it. I was just kind of meh about it. So I was lo- I was just looking as you were saying that to see is the lost daughter part of that series and it is not. It's yeah. it's it's a standalone book. So maybe I'll have to check that out. Yeah. Uh, and it's but- really short. You know, I I downloaded it from the library. I think the time on it is like a little over 2 hours. I think it's only like 145 pages. So okay. I'll finish it by tomorrow. But you know, now that I'm reading it having seen the movie it might be one of those books where I like the movie better. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
yeah. sometimes that happens. Yeah. So where did you see the oh, lost, lost daughter? daughter? I want to say Netflix. Okay. Yeah. So actually, the woman who plays Lita, the protagonist, the woman who plays her both as an you know like a woman in her forties and a woman her in her twenties, both of those women are up for Academy Awards for their performances. Is this Olivia Coleman? Yeah. Uh, Jesse Buckley okay. plays the young Lita. So are you still doing all the, uh, the wordle, quirtle, whatever wordles uh, that they've come up with? Are you still doing oh, those? Oh, yes. I look forward to it every day. I like quirtle because it's just a little bit more taxing and I don't always get it. Like sometimes I fail at it, but that's a good lesson for me. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is that our conversation with Maisie this week has given me some new words that I can use in Wordle that I did not know before. Really? Yeah. Maisie has introduced me to the word yonic, which is a five-letter word and is the opposite of phallic. <laughs> and so now I have a whole new word that I can add to my to my arsenal. <laughs> Is that is that your starter word? <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't think. Maybe I'll try it one time. I don't know that it's my starter <laughs> word. But, you know, I'm always looking to up my Wordle Quirtle game. I, I saw somebody posted on Twitter that they don't do Wordle, but their teenage son does. And the teenage son's starter word is penis every day. <laughs> I bet like, it is. That I sounds bet about right. Yeah. <laughs> Are you ready to talk to Maisie? Yes, let's do it. So Maisie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to talk with you too. It seems like it is such an exciting time for you right now. You are a dentist. You have your first book that's going to be published and, and come out into the world here in just a few weeks called A Brush With Love, a rom-com. And it's getting really great early reviews and a whole lot of love on Bookstagram right now. So tell us just a little bit about the book. Thank you for saying that. I think first and foremost, it's so uh, nerve wracking releasing a book. And so to hear you say that, I really appreciate it. It's nice to have that confirmation. But um, A Brush With Love is about two dental students that trade fillings for feelings um, as they <laughs> as they um, kind of navigate the messiness of being an adult and not really being sure what that means. It's an exploration of uh, not only like two people falling in love with each other, but also learning to love themselves and, and open themselves up to be loved. And it's also about kind of finding your passion in life and something that brings you a lot of personal satisfaction and joy. And then I think probably the biggest element of it too is that it explores anxiety through the main character, Harper. Her anxiety disorder is a really big component of the plot um, as she tries her best to hide it from the people she loves, but eventually learns to fight that internal ableism and kind of embrace who she is and embrace mental health and therapy and stuff like that along the way. So I get the sense that you were a big romance reader before you ever <laughs> wrote one. Is that correct? For, yes, for sure. For sure. I read something with a romantic plot, I think, almost <laughs> my entire reading life. If it doesn't have like a romantic subplot, I'm just not as into it. But yeah, I, I think I, I started with YA rom-coms in high school and stuff like that. And then I was really into historical romances 
that's that was my gateway to adult romance and um and now I just kind of read a little bit of everything in the genre and all the subgenres. Do you have any favorite rom-com books or you know books that you've read, you know, from the time you started reading them that are sort of your your all-time favorites? Oh my god. I mean, I could talk for hours about that one of my favorite books that's like been a consistent favorite and it's a more old school uh historical romance is Devil in Winter by Lisa Kleypas I think that she is such a phenomenal writer she really writes with like a sensuality about her prose and creates a very sensory experience while you're reading and every time I crack open her books it just like it feels like a study in craft almost but then you know, the genre too, and like looking at the contemporary side, authors like Helen Wong with The Kiss Quotient or Talia Hibbert with Actor Age, Eve Brown, those books have been so hugely monumental in the genre for showing neurodiverse reps in romances. And so, you know, those will always, always hold a special place in my heart. You know, I don't think Jane Eyre would be considered a rom-com. You know, it's not <laughs> comedy for sure, but but that sort of romance and that, you know, like the couple mm-hmm. ends up being together. When I was in high school, I had to read that and I was so bored, so bored, so bored <laughs> until it got to the orchard scene where they declare yeah. their love for each other. And at that point I was hooked and it's been like my favorite book for the rest of my life. I, I think romantic subplots are the best. Like falling in love is so awesome. You know, why not read about it too? And that's my right. philosophy. So how did you transition into being a huge romance reader to then deciding that you wanted to write your own romance? Because you're also a dentist. So it's not like you didn't have other stuff going on <laughs> in your life. You had a lot of really stressful, time-consuming things going on in your life. I mean, honestly, being so stressed was like a huge catalyst for it in a very weird, stressful coping mechanism sort of way. So like I said, I've always read romance and writing was something that I had toyed with and loved the idea of, but it was like, I could never finish a story. I kind of never thought like I had it in me to write a full blown book. Like there was just a lot of self doubt and and stuff surrounding it. And, you know, my career path and my education definitely took a a science track through undergrad and then going to dental school. But when I got to dental school, I was so stressed. I was so anxious. It really was probably like an anxiety high where I was just, I was so anxious constantly. I wasn't sleeping very much. Like I had really bad insomnia. And so I was consuming almost like a book a day. And most of them were romances. Actually, all of them were romances because I found so soothing to know that that happy ending was going to be guaranteed through the reading journey. So it felt like a very safe place. It allowed me to feel really connected to characters and stuff like that. But this was like 2018, 2019. And I wanted to see characters that kind of reflected my own struggles with my mental health and see that kind of front and center because it was such a big component of my life and just how I was like interacting with the world around me. And so I I slipped down the stairs at school. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had this idea for a meet cute and I wasn't sure like what to do with it, but these characters were talking so loudly to me. And then I was, I was on Instagram and Barnes and Noble was doing like, like an ask us for a trope or a setting or something. And we'll give you a book rec. And I asked for one set in either 
a dental office or dental school and, and they like DM me and they were like, we can't th- think of a single one. Um, <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, I guess that's my very <laughs> kind of unsexy niche here with like this <laughs> idea. <laughs> and yeah, and these characters, they really just popped into my head. And in a lot of ways, it was really, really cathartic to see, you know, two, ind- well, a whole group of individuals, because it was a big group of friends, but watching Harper and Dan navigate this like very stressful world of of dental school and having that happy ending and finding their passions in life and so you know their their journey is very separate and different and they're completely unique from like what I've experienced as a person but it it was a nice guide and a nice thing to see two people finding love and joy even in this in a hard time once you started writing it, was mm-hmm. this something where, you know, you'd be in dental school all day and then mm-hmm. during these bouts of insomnia is when you would write? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's funny, so those first two years of dental school are, are almost entirely classes and I, I have ADHD, so I can't focus at all in lectures and stuff like that. So my big thing was like, I would have to create transcriptions of lectures to then read through to process the information. So I would be in like the back of lecture halls, like just furiously typing away different ideas and scenes of that. I know it's so well, the, the professors. <laughs> none the wiser right they right. they think you're typing of all these great notes of the lecture you know so we did have lab sections too and so I would get an idea and I would like stop what I was doing and you know type in my notes app really fast so it would just anytime an idea struck me I would find a way to stop what I was doing and record it because it, it I felt very moved by you know these characters speaking to me and stuff and it got to the point where the person that was sitting next to me in labs the entire year was like are you writing a book or something like what are you doing <laughs> And that was the first person I told outside of my boyfriend that I was writing a book because she just totally called it. And then I was up until, you know, three, four in the morning writing. I get home from school and I would be writing. And I'm very lucky that my partner let me dissolve into this fictional world as as immensely as I did. Because, yeah, I disappeared there for a while. (laughs) How long did it take you to write it? It took me about six months to write the book. And, and I kind of was doing a little bit of editing and stuff as I was going. And then I think I spent another month or two really, really editing it and refining it before I queried it with a literary agent. Wow. So like, at what point did you start practicing as a dentist? Because I can just imagine you're starting this new profession that you've obviously trained for, but then you've also got this book. So how did that line up with what was going on with the book at that point? Yeah. So I pretty much wrote the book during my second semester of dental school. I didn't start seeing patients until um, July, 2020, actually, like right in the start really of the pandemic and everything. And so those first two years of school were really heavily didactic courses and stuff. And so it's been an interesting journey the past, I guess, two years or so now learning to now balance because I've, I've been writing additional books. And so I'm, I'm learning to like create this new balance and and it's almost easier in some ways because like I have learned to manage my stress a lot better. And the thing I love about dentistry is, is getting to interact with people. So like it, it feels so much easier to do my job. Like I was just really having a hard time with focusing like eight hours a day on, on lectures 
my brain doesn't process that way. It never has, it never will. But there was like a very specific learning mold and paradigm that was like expected those first couple of years. And I think that's why it was so stressful for me because it just didn't work for the way that I'm wired. But now with like interacting with patients and stuff like that, like I just feel so fulfilled. And I love, I love what I do from eight to five. And then I come home and I write and then I spend most of my weekends writing. And so, and you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, it, your character of, uh, of Harper has extreme anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not mm-hmm. just your, oh, I feel a little bit you know, mm-hmm. worried about this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and you mentioned that you have dealt with anxiety. Talk to us a little bit about in terms of finding characters that also deal with anxiety. Was that mm-hmm. something that you felt has been missing in the genre? Yeah, I felt like, and you know, it could just be that I, I wasn't aware of the books at the time. I remember like a, a hugely monumental moment for me as a reader was was reading The Kiss Quotient by Helen Wong, where main protagonist has autism and is grappling with intimacy and relationships while also being a neurodivergent person living in a very neurotypical world. And I read that book right as I was about to finish up A Brush With Love. And it actually, I uh, that book is so important to me because it, it gave me like the last bit of surge of like, you can do this, or you can write a story about about mental health, and people will want to read it. So I'm like, eternally grateful for, for that book. But yeah, I just I wasn't seeing characters that had a mental illness like I was experiencing, and have that be like, you know, front and center on the page, but also not have it be like this traumatic experience, or you know, how a lot of times when we we talk about mental illness, or we look at it, a lot of times it's through the lens of pure struggle. And I think what makes romances so great, again, is those happy endings. And so I wanted to merge the two and and show that they're like, not these mutually exclusive concepts, like you can hurt and still have immense joy, like you can you can be depressed and still laugh your ass off, you know, and yeah, I just I think I wanted to see a character that reflected my own struggles with anxiety, but also this like deep desire to to love and be loved and have you know, really meaningful relationships. So you refer to yourself as a neurodiverse author with both ADHD and autism. So what lessons did you learn from your own experiences that you put into writing that character of Harper? Yeah, so Harper's physical manifestations of anxiety. It was really important for me to convey anxiety. I feel like it's a very invisible disorder, right? And I think the feeling of anxiety is pretty universal, but having like a generalized anxiety disorder is a unique visceral experience for people. And so I was really just hoping to convey like the physical toll that it can take on your body. Like it can be a, a huge weight to carry and it kind of takes up like a, a portion of your brain. So you're not always fully in a moment or things like that. And so I just wanted to figure out a way to put that on the page and make it make it relatable or at least like understandable for people that maybe don't experience it. And and Harper doesn't have ADHD or autism, like she just experiences this anxiety disorder, but I believe my you know, my own experiences with ADHD and autism, it requires me to interact with the world and people in a different way than neurotypicals. And so in a lot of ways, I study how people interact because um, it doesn't come as naturally to me. So I'm like trying to learn and observe. And I think that that's brought that into the writing a bit on how, you know, we 
I needed to study people or, or learn about them to kind of portray how they interact with the world together, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think because I have OCD and generalized anxiety disorder. Mm. And I remember I met somebody and, and her son was having severe anxiety, like not eating, mm-hmm. crying, just could not function. And he was having thoughts of suicide. Mm-hmm. And she was talking about this and that whole thing was so foreign to her. And mm-hmm. I remember thinking to myself, I can't imagine an existence where where those three, you know, like those mm-hmm. things aren't there, you know? And so, you know, I I know for myself, it does feel like when I read a book where somebody has anxiety or they have OCD, it's like, oh, you know, it does give Mm -hmm. you that feeling like I'm not alone. There is somebody, Mm -hmm. this author, somebody in the world understands my lived experience. Mm -hmm. And and also, I think your last response alludes to this. I think that it's getting better, but I still Mm -hmm. think a lot of people, you know, when they think of people who have mental illness, they think of people who are that movie version of crazy, right? Like they are, they are non-functional. And -hmm. it's like, there are a lot of people who have issues that are Mm -hmm. wonderfully productive, Mm -hmm. you know, people who have families and they have lives and their existence doesn't stop. This is, but this Mm -hmm. is part of who they are. So I, I really appreciated that about your novel. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. It's like, it's such like a basic component of who I am and and it sounds like of who you are and it's kind of just a fact right like it's not like this awful thing or we have brown eyes or green eyes we have anxiety we have OCD like it's it's a basic component of what makes us who we are and how we live with it and we're kind of forced to almost feel like we need to hide it because of like these portrayals of you know the, the classic like crazy person in a movie or something like that and it's like no that's not the truth there's everything's on a spectrum well dan in your story doesn't have anxiety but he has other issues as well he had a terrible relationship with his father who passed away Mm -hmm. and he ends up going into a profession he goes to dental school even though he really has no passion for it he's not very good at it because his (laughs) mother wants him to come back and take over their dental practice Mm -hmm. where did the idea for dan's conflict come from i think it came a lot from my friend and i we we are both in in medicine and we've talked a lot about a, a sense of obligation that we had almost to go into the field or kind of this need to to fit ourselves into a mold of maybe what what was expected of us or like what was wanted of us. And I think that it's something that a lot of people that, you know, um, especially coming from family legacies of certain professions, they feel this weight or this burden to to follow that path in order to uh, belong with their their family. And and so I I kind of just wanted to explore that idea. And I also think that guilt and, and familial obligation is something that actually is a huge component of so many people's lives. And, you know, it, it might be changing and things like that, where people feel more comfortable and free to, to pursue their own passions and stuff. But I do think it's actually very prevalent 
and we we kind of go through life out of a sense of guilt or duty and like things that we feel like we need to do for others instead of of living for ourselves fully. So I don't know, I it was just something that I wanted to explore and and kind of look at. And there there are a lot of people that go into medicine or or dentistry where it is again like a family legacy sort of thing. That was really new to me going into dental school because none of my family is, is doctors. And so I guess that was just kind of eye-opening to me, like, oh, like a lot of people pursue this path because it's it's all they know, you know, it's all mm-hmm. they've grown up being around, both their parents are dentists, their their siblings are dentists, like all this kind of stuff. My husband is a physician and mm-hmm. um, I was with him, you know, all through medical school, but it's mm-hmm. hard for me to imagine someone going into that or dentistry who does not have a passion for it because mm-hmm. it is so grueling. It's hard to imagine making yourself do that if it's not something that you really want to do and if it's just a uh, result of of guilt so gosh that would be a very yeah. unhappy a very unhappy thing <laughs> yeah for for sure definitely not yeah. not the not the best recipe for uh lifelong satisfaction <laughs> absolutely not so one of the conflicts between Harper and Dan happens, uh, this was this was a great scene in the book, happens mm-hmm. when he tries to stand up for her with an uncooperative dental patient. So mm-hmm. uh, Dan thinks he's being helpful, kind of like knight in shining armor. Mm-hmm. I'm going to protect Harper, but he's really undermining her and, mm-hmm. and her authority. And so we wanted to hear, you know, sort of your views on sexism against female dentists and why you wanted to include that in your story. Oh my gosh, because I was shocked by how much sexism there was in the field. It was pretty astounding. And I don't know if maybe I just went into it naive, but almost on a daily basis, there's some sort of microaggression or kind of macroaggression against uh, women practitioners. And, and I don't think it's it's just dentistry. I think it's a lot of medicine and, and STEM in general. I see the way that like people discussing with colleagues and like the way people are treated in interviews um, is different based on whether they're a man or a woman. You know, there's been things thrown around where it is this idea like, oh, well, being a cute girl helps you in interviews. And actually, the things that were said were a lot more horrific. But like, you know, it, it, it is said and it's kind of this theme. And I've had patients not want to work with me because I'm a woman. And uh, I have to respect that. that it, it's their choice. They're autonomous people. But it's still like, damn, like, you know, I, (laughs) what year are we living in? And, and the way, you know, those patients then are transferred to a man and, you know, you might have a conversation with a new, you know, your colleague who took over the case and their experience with that patient couldn't be more different, you know, night and day, just interactions Mm -hmm. and stuff. And so, yeah, there's still like this level of of misogyny and and sexism that's, that's kind of rampant in medicine. And so I just wanted to highlight that because I found it rather shocking and, wow, this is pretty messed up. <laughs> yeah. That was a great scene. I mean, I remember texting Carrie, oh my gosh, I, I love this scene with this this chauvinistic patient. Yeah. I mean, when she said mm-hmm. that he was uncooperative, that's sort of downplaying it a little bit. Yeah, he, <laughs> he was, was uncooperative, yeah. but I mean, he was a complete chauvinist word that I don't want to say on radio. But the whole thing about Harper not wanting Dan to insert himself into that situation and let her handle it so as not to undermine her authority. I guess I had never really thought about it that way, but it completely 
enlightened me when I read it. I thought, yeah, that's absolutely right. Because it, again, it's a man sort of coming to her rescue mm-hmm. and she can handle it. Yeah. She did you a know, great it, job of handling it. I was so impressed with her. Like, I, again, writing these characters felt like a very like outer body experience where it's like, I'm just transcribing what they're doing. But I feel like I had almost never like consciously thought about it that way either. But Harper was very determined to be the hero of her own story. And Dan, he really is just like a delighted cheerleader for her. And I did actually have a really good time writing that scene. And I felt like really empowered writing it. <laughs> well, you nailed it. You nailed oh, that scene. You. That was good. Thank you. <laughs> so I like that Harper, you know, she, she does have this group of really good friends who support her, but they also, you know, they also tell her some hard truths in a very gentle way that she, you know, she doesn't really yep. want to deal with, which I think that's so helpful if someone does have a mental illness, you know, sometimes family and friends, it's easier to appease somebody mm-hmm. and to just go along and not say what needs to be said for that person's benefit. So why was it important for you to, to include that in, in the story? I think because it, it's hard to open yourself up to people when you're you're struggling with a mental illness, even people you trust the most, right? Because we, we do kind of internalize these ideas that our feelings are a burden to others or things like that. And I wanted to kind of demonstrate ways that friends can be there for people with an anxiety disorder or or mental illness. Tough love, but also in a very gentle way where you keep the door open. You challenge the thoughts that people might have, the lies that their anxiety is telling them. And, you know, it's kind of just like a gentle prodding and being like, your feelings are valid about this, but that doesn't mean they're true. Mm -hmm. You know, like it doesn't mean that, you know, everything that your brain is telling you is, is the reality of the situation. And yeah, I don't know, her friends, they popped into my head also very fully formed. And they it was just really fun and, and rewarding to write that. They, they brought a lot of joy to the story, I felt like. I want to talk a little bit about a trend, it seems to me, in rom-coms right now to write mm-hmm. STEM-focused female characters. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like uh, women in science is the new sexy. And mm-hmm. so I'm thinking of authors like Elizabeth Everett and Helen Huang and It seems like rom-coms in general seem to be a little ahead of the curve as far as representation of some underrepresented groups such as disabled, neurodiverse, the LGBTQ+. And so talk to us a little bit about this. And do you think rom-coms are a good vehicle for telling stories about these types of characters? Yeah, absolutely. I think, gosh, one of the things that makes romance so wonderful to me, like genre of romance and everything, is really how anybody can be the main character and like everybody's story matters and and we can see these people that are are from marginalized identities take the leading role and find love and joy and fulfillment in in so many ways even just outside of of romantic love which obviously the romantic love is like the crux of the story but I have yet to read a romance where there isn't some like personal self-actualization or finding fulfillment in things I don't know why I, I mean obviously no genre is perfect and I think that there's so many ways that romance can continue to be more inclusive and and grow as a genre. But I I do really think that the community as a whole has taken tremendous strides to tell the stories of marginalized identities. And and yeah, I, I, I think it's so exciting to see all of these, you know, STEM romances coming out too, because 
I, it just shows that like, you know, science is sexy. And, and, and in a lot of ways, I feel like women in STEM are almost put into situations where they have to kind of close the door to their sexuality or femininity or things like that in order to be taken seriously in these fields that have so often been uh, dominated by men. And I think that this like exploration of, of women in STEM having wants and needs outside of this career that's it, that's so demanding is just a really fun juxtaposition and look at how people can can have it all. You know, you can have this really intense or unique career and also have like this, these fulfilling relationships and, and stuff like that. And I, I, I really do feel like it's a great genre to explore happiness and joy for marginalized identities. So your bio says that you want to write love stories for every brain. So what other brains are you hoping to explore one day in your work? Are there, are there certain things that, that you're like, I would love to write a story about this, that, or the mm -hmm. other? You know, it, it's interesting, too, when, like, looking at it, and it's, like, lived experiences, I think, are really important for writing, you know, representation in books. But, you know, I, I feel very lucky that my second book gets to look at a an ADHD heroine and her journey, understanding her difficulties with executive functioning and stop trying to, like, fit herself into, you know, the boxes of, like, a neurotypical world and embrace the way that she's wired. And I'm really excited because I have a couple of books coming out with autistic characters. And, you know, that has been so fulfilling to, to show that and like the exploration again of, of somebody with ASD and, you know, finding love and passion and stuff like that. And yeah, I just, I, I really think that, you know, mental illness and neurodiversities in a lot of ways are invis invisible things that people have or maybe struggle with. And it's nice to shine a light on that and, and show that. And no, I'm excited to keep exploring with what my characters have to say. Well, I know you're super busy launching uh, this book, A Brush With Love. Mm -hmm. I know that you have another one that's coming out later this year. So is that the one that has the ADHD character? Yeah. What's the name of the book? It's called Lizzie Blake's Best Mistake, um, and it's coming out September 6th. So just about six months after. Yeah, I'm so excited about that one, too. Lizzie is one of Harper's uh, best friends, and so it's still in that same oh, universe. Yeah, I didn't yeah. realize that. Okay, okay, yes. that totally makes sense now. Yes. Okay. Of course, Harper and Dan make little cameos in the book, which was so fun. But yeah, Lizzie, she is chaotic. She gets involved in a uh, underground, like, erotic baking scene. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which was, I like, sometimes I'm just like, I can't believe they let me get away with this. Um <laughs> You know, it's a, it's a really, really fun book. It's a very opposites attract sort of romance. Her love interest, his name is Rake, which a Rake is a very um, common archetype, especially in historical romance, where it's kind of like the the playboy of Regency era and stuff like that. So I, you know, I had plenty of jokes at his expense through the book. But yeah, the, the duo... Um, they have a two-night stand, and they have quite a few consequences from it. And, and Lizzie, you know, accidentally gets pregnant, and they're kind of navigating intimacy and not knowing what they're doing at all. And, you know, Lizzie's journey with her ADHD and kind of just embracing learning and functioning in a way that, like, honors who she is as opposed to forcing herself into other boxes. So, yeah, it's a really fun story, and, and I'm very excited about it, too. 
You are having a busy, busy year. I know. I have five books coming out over the next two years. Oh so, my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's wild. It is a wild journey. Wow. So are you still practicing dentistry? Are you doing that right now as well? Like in the midst of writing these five, well, I mean, obviously you already have two written, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I am. I, uh, I graduate in May. This is like a really big wild year. I'm going to finally start working as like a licensed dentist. And yeah, I plan on doing both. I have four of the five books written right now. (laughs) So I got to get that last one done. But yeah, it's, it's been exhausting, but I'm overwhelmed with gratitude at this, these opportunities that I've had um, to write these stories. And one of the books is going to be a YA, which I'm super, super excited about. So that has an ADHD heroine and autistic hero. And it's in a lot of ways like the neurodiverse rep that I I longed for as a teenager. Um, So yeah, it's been very busy. It's very tiring, but I'm so beyond grateful for the chance to, to do any of this. So I'm, I'm clutching at the moment with both hands. Oh yeah. <laughs> my goodness. Congratulations. Oh, Bravo you. to you for you. accomplishing all that stuff. And I am, I am really glad that you are writing stories that represent maybe, you know, stories that we haven't heard in that genre mm-hmm. or in literature in general. So Thanks so much. And I think now we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to all talk about what we're reading. We are back with Maisie Eddings and with Carrie. Carrie, I hear that you have been reading some books and watching some movies that might be based on those books. What what are you doing over there? I have been. So actually, I had never heard about this book. One day, Dean and I were, you know, flipping through Netflix or whatever. And there was there's a new Guillermo del Toro movie called Nightmare Alley. So we watched that movie. So I just kind of looked it up, found out it was based on a book. And it was written by William Lindsay Gresham. So the book was published in 1946. And the story begins with this anonymous carnival geek. And a, a carnival geek, For if you don't know what that is, that's typically a man who's a drunk and whose addiction is used against him to get him to do things that no one else will do, such as biting the heads off live chickens. Okay, so this was part of a a carnival show, you know, in the 1930s, 40s, in that era. All right, so that's how this book starts. And then from that image, the story begins to introduce other performers in the carnival. So there's Molly. She's an orphan teenage girl who does this electricity show. And then there's Zena, a tarot reader. And then there's Stan. He is a new to the carnival young man who has ambitious plans. As you read more of the book, you realize that his childhood was a mess. His mother abandoned him. And he had a father who was very strict and overbearing. But Stan has seemingly left all that behind to make it big, and he has the skills to do it. So as the novel continues, the reader learns that Stan, while he is ambitious, he's also deeply cruel. He's ruthless, and he cares for himself and money. So so this is the crux of the story. Stan prides himself on being able to read his mark. And so a mark is the person that you're going to pull one over on. So he prides himself on being able to read his mark, but As the story continues, he meets up with marks that he grossly underestimates. So by the end of the story, and to me, this is proof that a story was really good. 
you're stuck between feeling like Stan got exactly what he deserved, but you feel equally sorry for him at the same time. So the book was really good. You know, I felt like it, it ends in a really great way. I won't tell what that is. The, the downside of the story, and you know, if you are the type of person who likes a definite strict chronological story this story sort of jumps around and sometimes it's told in a bit of a stream of consciousness so you know you like you might have to read several paragraphs or even a page or two into that section to kind of get your bearings again so if you are a person who cannot stand that and it makes you feel anxious then you might struggle with this and, and you know for myself even there would be times where i'm like okay where where am i who's talking what's going on but the book is good and the movie is riveting um mm. and i recommend both i think it's like up for academy awards well and bradley cooper plays stan Right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. He plays, I mean, it has got um, Tony Collette, it's got Kate Blanchett, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, uh, Willem Dafoe. You know, I mean, like, it is an all star cast and it's really good. It's a really good movie. So I haven't read this book or seen the movie, but I did hear an interview with Guillermo de Toro with Terry Gross on Fresh Air, and it was a really interesting interview with him about this movie and about his career. But if this is something that interests you, you should go back. And try to listen to that yeah but the other thing that i think is interesting is that the guy who wrote the book what did you say his name was i forget uh william Lindsay gresham okay his wife left him to marry c.s lewis what the one who wrote the chronicle of narnia series yeah so you know oh. a plot twist so <laughs> oh my gosh I, yeah. I saw that movie recently and I like have not stopped thinking about that ending and yeah like, was, it was so good it was so good yeah well yeah. we'll have to watch it my husband loves Guillermo del Toro movies so I know that I will be watching it soon so I'm glad to know that you both enjoyed it yeah well Maisie what have you been reading Oh, gosh, I've been dabbling in a little bit of everything. One book that actually just recently released, and you mentioned the author earlier, but I'm reading um, A Perfect Equation by Elizabeth Everett. This is actually a reread because I read it a while ago, but um, it is such an amazing Victorian era historical romance that looks at a, a female mathematician and she tries to solve this formula. And it's, you know, Elizabeth Everett is, you know, quickly becoming one of my favorite authors. I think she writes intensely witty books and novels and so I'm just having so much fun with this kind of like you know an enemies to lovers plot um and they're kind of reluctant allies and and some hilarious banter so that that's one that I've been rereading and then another one that I'm rereading I I like to reread a lot I don't know there's just something like comforting about it I feel like but the other one is The Gracier by Kim Legit or Legit I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I'm so sorry, but it's a YA dystopian novel where when girls turn 16 in this society, they're sent away to this island for a year. And they're told that because they have this magic within them and it's like an evil, dark magic. And if, if they're left out there for a year, they can like rid themselves of it. It is such a stunning novel, like such a, an amazing look at like internalized misogyny um, and, and patriarchal like structures. It's one of my all time favorite books. And so I've been 
been revisiting that. I can't recommend it enough. And I actually think it's going to be made into a movie pretty soon. Elizabeth Banks, I believe, is producing it or something like that. So yeah, very good one. I highly recommend. Say the name of it again. One more time. Oh, The Gracier by Kim Legit, I think is how you pronounce Uh, the last name. I am in a YA book club. So I'll have to suggest that one to my book club. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Well, Amy, what have you had going on over there? So I'm going to talk about a book that is not a book that I ever intended to read, frankly. So a member of our book club named Anne posted an emphatic message on our Facebook group recently that she had just (laughs) finished this book and she wanted to shout from the rooftops about how funny this book was, but she didn't want to post it to her Facebook page because she was afraid her 90-year-old grandmother would see it. (laughs) (laughs) So based on that recommendation, I decided why not? And the name of the book is called Yearbook by Seth Rogen. And I immediately downloaded the audiobook version from my library. So before reading this book, I wouldn't say that I was really a huge Seth Rogen fan. I've seen a few of his movies, but not many. They, I don't dislike him necessarily, but his movies are, aren't generally my thing. So I guess my point is you don't have to be a fan of Seth Rogen to enjoy this book. So it's a celebrity memoir. And if you aren't familiar with who Seth Rogen is, he is a filmmaker, comedian, and actor. He's appeared in movies such as Steve Jobs, Knocked Up, 40-Year-Old Virgin, and Freaks and Geeks. But he's also been the screenwriter and made such films as Superbad, Pineapple Express, and the infamous The Interview, the movie that almost caused an international incident with North Korea <laughs> because Kim Jong-un didn't like that he was he was portrayed in a satirical way in it. I am so glad I listened to this book. It is the type of thing that you want to listen to when you need just complete entertainment. You aren't looking for a greater life lesson here. This is just like eating a whole sleeve or two of Oreos in one sitting and not being sorry about it. (laughs) So Rogan grew up in Vancouver, Canada and started doing stand-up from the time he was about 10. So for the most part, this memoir is in chronological order, starting with his childhood and up to the present. And he just tells great stories, stories about being Jewish, about comedy, about making movies, about meeting and falling in love with his wife, and about some of the hilarious incidents he has had with other celebrities. His stories about George Lucas, who made the Star Wars series, and Snoop Dogg were two of my favorites. (laughs) But he also shed some light on the whole fiasco of the movie The Interview and how he really disagreed uh, with pulling that movie from theaters because he felt like it was an anti-free speech precedent that was being set, even though he had to have bodyguards protecting him for a while. And there are a lot of stories about drug use in this. Uh, Rogan (laughs) is a vocal proponent of legalized marijuana, but he's also used, I mean, almost all kinds of illegal drugs. He will tell you that he has a form of Tourette syndrome and that he really can't function well without smoking pot. And I make no judgments about that, but he absolutely tells a lot of stories about using weed, mushrooms, ecstasy and acid so if drug use is a trigger for you or something that you just don't want to read about if, if it isn't portrayed in a negative don't do drugs see all the horrible things that happen to you when you do drugs kind of way this book is not for you and if you're sensitive to salty language steer clear of this book <laughs> i have not read it in the physical book form so i cannot say what the reading experience is like for it although my friend who you know was the one screaming about it from the rooftops really loved it 
but I cannot more highly recommend the audio version. Rogan narrates his own book, which in my book is always a plus, especially with a comedy memoir, because he delivers the funny bits in just the right way to really make them pop. And it's like he's doing a stand-up routine almost. He's telling these stories, not narrating it in the sense that we think of in an audiobook. And it has very high production value. There are parts of the book where he's recalling conversations that he's had. And in the physical form, I suspect that they're written as like scripted segments. But in the audio version, there are different people acting these different parts out. So it has the feel of like listening to a TV show. So listening to the audiobook is really like, like you're experiencing a Netflix comedy special, but through your ears. So the next time you're looking for a good time and definitely not a book you want to listen to with your aging parents or your kids, <laughs> check this one out. Although he does tell a pretty funny story about an incident with pot and his father-in-law. So maybe the <laughs> aging parents thing is in a no-go. <laughs> well, this one's on my list. It's been, it, it, it has been on my list for a while. So oh, that's funny. Well, these all sound awesome. Let's go ahead and take another quick break. And when we come back, Maisie's going to answer her three in the third degree. We are back with Maisie Eddings and we're going to ask her her three in the third degree. So Maisie, I didn't realize until I read your book that there are so many dental phrases that have a sexual connotation if you have the right mindset. So <laughs> as a romance writer, are you extra tuned into the double entendre? And are you tempted to add, that's what she said after everything? <laughs> <laughs> I I love this question. Um, I don't know if it's because I'm a romance writer or I'm just not particularly mature. Um, but I... <laughs> I don't know. I'm always looking for a pretty funny, like double entendre and, and dentistry is so primed for it. I mean, it's just endless oral jokes. Like you, yes. you can't escape it. <laughs> and you know, I am tempted to add a, that's what she said. I like to, I like to pull that one out with my boyfriend a lot. And he just like, he just shakes his head at me. Yeah. But again, I'm not sure if that's because of the romance writer thing or mainly just because I like have the sense of humor of like a, a 12 year old boy but um <laughs> so yeah the next one she's an erotic baker I don't even know if it's double entendre so much as just like very plainly stated jokes <laughs> and like like I said she's making cream pies and just being very obscene with with yeah. what she's doing in the kitchen well yeah, just so. cream pie I mean there you go there's yeah, your there's I your know. erotic you know yeah, I know. And he really focuses on the yonic form as opposed to the phallic. And I was cracking up writing this one and just like researching different desserts. And I was like, hmm, how can I make that like overtly sexual? Like, <laughs> like I said, I don't know how I got away with this one. <laughs> All right. Question number two. Do you describe yourself as a crazy cat lady? Okay. I mean, probably. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what, was, what separates a crazy cat lady from a, from just a woman who owns cats? What do you think? I, I think it is my deep obsession with just constantly wanting to know what my cats are up to. Like I, <laughs> I, okay. I only have two. 
I want more, but my boyfriend's like, we literally cannot handle it at this point. Our lives are already controlled by these two cats. Like, we can't take on any more. Yeah, he's like, it would start to be weird if we got more. But I would say... I kind of like want to have a sense of where my cats are at all times. I love just looking at them. Like, I'm just like, what is going on in their little heads? You know, I I wish I could talk to them. And yeah, I would say like that deep rooted obsession with just knowing everything about my cats is like probably what puts me right on that path. (laughs) I'm about to tell you, Carrie read your book before I did. And she said, Oh my God, there is a cat in this book called Big Booty Judy. I love it. <laughs> I was like, sold. I'm sold. Yeah. It could have gone completely downhill after that. I would have been, it's okay. Big Booty Judy, save the day. <laughs> she is the real hero of that story. I swear. She's like everybody's favorite. And I, I couldn't agree more. You know, cats are so underrepresented. In books, I feel like, and especially romance, like there's an entire subgenre about basically, you know, people with dogs, like romances around that. And I'm like, where are the cats? You know, us cat ladies exist and like we (laughs) need our representation. (laughs) Okay. Question number three. So about a year ago, you posted on Instagram that Photobox Wines should hire you to be a representative for their brand. So I'm wondering, was that a result of the pandemic or are you really a Photobox Wine lover? You know, I'm still putting this out into the universe. You know what? After I posted that, Vodabox messaged me that they were sending me something and they never did. So singularly devastating. (laughs) So if you're listening, Vodabox, like, I'm still upset. But yeah, I mean, we all spiraled during the pandemic. I'll be the first to admit it. (laughs) But uh, I found that boxed wine was like really great to have in the fridge, especially in those early days of the pandemic when we were... I don't know, at least I was drinking and stress eating quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. And then it just became like, it almost became like a running joke. Like, I probably can't even talk about this, but somebody, my dad, I'll just put it out there. He was mailing me like boxes of wine (laughs) (laughs) and and paper towels. And I would get these care packages, right? Because I was like scared to go to the grocery store you know what, this is a father supporting his daughter right here. That's right. (laughs) Absolutely. And I really enjoy wine, but some of the boxed wines are pretty good. And there's something about the way that they're boxed and the way that they're sealed that they last a really long time, like Mm -hmm. much longer than a bottle of wine would once it's open. Seriously. Yeah. No, I mean, I think a a boxed wine painter lasts for like 30 days. Whereas if you open a bottle of wine, like white wine, I think you have to drink it within like three days, right? Yeah. Or it goes bad. Yeah. yeah. Well, it yeah. starts to taste off, you know, it starts to taste like mm-hmm. Kind, mm-hmm. kind of like vinegary. So. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, obviously there are way better wines out there. Like I am not under any illusion that Boda is like the best wine. <laughs> I do want to make that clear because some of my friends thought that I was under that impression. <laughs> <laughs> I do have like some sense of reality, but, um, you know, I think it's great. I think it's great to take to a party. Um, I think the packaging can be really fun and it really is. I think they taste good. Like, you know, some varieties of boxed wine I've had, I'm like, this is a headache in a glass, but but Boda, (laughs) yeah, Boda doesn't, doesn't leave me hurting like the other ones do. That's a solid recommendation right there. And (laughs) Boda Box should definitely send you whatever it is that they had for you. 
I know. I, I One day, one day, it will happen. I'll email you guys and I'll be like, we finally did it. Yay. <laughs> well, Maisie, thanks again so much for joining us. It's been really fun chatting with you. And congratulations on these books that you have coming out in the next couple of years. It's, it, it'll be fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. You two are such a treat. And I, I oh my gosh, my cheeks hurt from uh, smiling so much. <laughs> That's the highest praise right there. <laughs> You can find Maisie Eddings on Instagram at Maisie Eddings and at her author website, MaisieEddings.com. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at The Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org.